What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. My guest today is the author of a new book exploring the colonial military and political similarities and connections between India and Israel that have led to an extreme conservative nationalism in those nation states. Now, we've discussed elements of the rise of conservatism in both these countries on this show, but the book we'll be discussing today gives us a clearer picture of how ethnic or religious nationalism works by exploring their development in parallel to one another, including with the influence of our U.S. political machine. The lands of both these countries were British colonies, and their political development since formal colonial times have included religious and ethnic partitions and borders, with Palestine on the one side and Pakistan and the Kashmir on the other. Azad Essa is a South African journalist who covers U.S. foreign policy, Islamophobia, and race in the U.S. for the Middle East Eye. His new book, just out on Pluto Press, is called Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. Thank you for joining us today, Azad. Hi, Jesse. Hi to your listeners. Thank you so much for, for having me. And for full disclosure to our listeners, Azad and I were colleagues together at Al Jazeera well over a decade ago, kind of just before the beginnings of this book were born. So we'll go into the history and political connections in a bit. But Azad, I'm wondering if you can start with what brought you to write this book and in particular, the series you worked on in 2011 for Al Jazeera and the fallout that came afterward. Wow, that's uh, those are that's a nice way to start, especially linking up to the Al Jazeera fallout. Um, okay, so as you mentioned, I'm from South Africa, and so I was born at the the end of uh, apartheid in the early '80s, and the country was heaving, you know, under this under the, the under the boycott and sanction movement that had been, um, you know, uh, placed on apartheid South Africa, as well as, you know, battling this unrest that was unfolding across the, the country. And, um, you know, growing up in South Africa as a young, as a young brown person at the time, I was struck by this idea of solidarity that w- was coming from, you know, various parts of the globe. And as someone whose grandparents had been, had, had, had basically traveled from from subcontinent in the early 1920s, you know, before partition of the subcontinent. Um, You know, I was also struck by how this new state of India, you know, had basically become such a supporter of the anti-apartheid movement. India basically became the first country to um, install or impose sanctions and a boycott of South Africa, even before apartheid regime actually came um was it was actually you know came to the fore like in 1948 um because they recognized the level of racism and the kind of ethnic cleansing that was taking place in the country so i was struck by that and i was also um i was very enthused as well by the kind of rhetoric and the kind of discourse that had come after the release of uh, Nelson Mandela in, in the early 90s, who also started talking about things like our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. So this kind of conversation or this kind of like idea of international solidarity was something that stuck with me. But then when I, as a graduate student, uh, was introduced to Kashmir, I, a lot of those a lot of those ideas about India and and also about actually states as well, um, you know, was basically shattered because I discovered that India was, you know, while it was uh, talking about being an anti-colonial state and imposing shan- sanctions on, on, on South Africa, it was sort of running its own colonial project in Kashmir. And um, I started digging into that. And, um, you know, you mentioned this Kashmir story from 20, 2011 when, you know, I, I joined Al Jazeera in 2010 and um, I was determined to report on Kashmir because I thought it was the perfect type of story for Al Jazeera. 
And when we were reporting on it, and we we, we produced this 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 immense uh, special page called the Forgotten Conflict. Um, actually, that's also a misnomer. You know, it's it's not forgotten; it's erased. And um, once we started publishing these stories, the Indian government started coming at us very very hard, and they actually uh, cancelled visas for Al Jazeera journalists who actually just wanted to travel to India on you know for tourists uh, tourist um, uh, you know tourist holidays or whatever you know, um, and so. We we basically battled to report in Kashmir because we had this immense blowback, and what that showed to me was that, and 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 basically we kind of in a way you could say self censored. You know, we were not told that, um, you know, we can't report in Kashmir. Like didn't, there was no directive from like from the top or something, but because of the difficulty in covering Kashmir and because of the consequences. That, that was taking place uh, as a result of our coverage, you know, we found that we were doing less on Kashmir. Um, and um, when we started talking to others about Kashmir and what India is, is what India is doing there, sort of like the, the special laws that exist, the, the 700,000 troops that, uh, that basically have taken over some of the best land in that place, um, the kind of disappearances and the torture and all of those things um, that exist there. I found that people still had this idea of India being very much uh, a leader of the non aligned movement, an anti-colonial leader. Um, and there was always, there was sort of like a nostalgia for India and, and a disbelief that India could be evil in that way. Um, and so, uh, and I also, I also found that there was, um, you know, part of the disbelief was also related to the cultural power that India held you know, in our imagination, when it comes to like the nonviolence of Gandhi, or when it comes to Bollywood, when it comes to things like yoga and the idea of self-purification and being connected to nature. So you have this, you know, you have this disbelief regarding that India could be doing these things. Now, what happened is that in 2014, India set on a new path in a way where, where Modi became prime minister. And when he became prime minister, one of the first things he did was he essentially kind of um, publicly associated with Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, the minister, uh, prime minister of uh, of Israel, and for the first time, um, you know, in a, in a couple of years, uh, I think twenty seventeen, he then went to to Israel, and uh, they walked on the beach, and basically they created this impression that they, it was like these two civilizations and these two old friends were meeting for the first time. You know, it was the first time an Indian prime minister had gone to Israel. So what I mean by this is that um, whereas, you know, um, in the past you had this idea of India, Modi came and shattered the idea. And so it prompted me to then look into what and how that idea of India had come to be. So I wanted to research that and I wanted to, I wanted to understand, you know, how does a country that you know says that they're so pro-Palestine and that they're anti-colonial and they're against the empire and all of those things suddenly you know in a matter of, a, of several decades now becomes a strategic partner now in 2019 something else happens is that uh, the Modi government revoked the semi-autonomous uh, stat status of Kashmir um, and that mean that meant that uh, uh, Indians could now move to Kashmir, buy land in Kashmir, and Kashmir now was under the jurisdiction of the of the the central government, and um, it was basically or effectively an, an an annexation of the place. And there was a, a a senior diplomat in New York who spoke to a bunch of Kashmiri Hindus and uh, some other Indian nationals in a private gathering, and he said that, look, we are going to like build settlements in Kashmir. We're going to we're going to follow that Israeli model. If Israel can do it, we can do it. And so that, in a way, crystallized what I had been following for some time. And I decided that I want to write a book about the relationship. Well, you started talking about Modi, and I'm wondering. We're gonna touch on some of the history, but since we're there now, can you? just introduce us a little bit to Narendra Modi and his government and and where they are at at this point in um, 
political alignment with certainly with Israel as, as in the context of your book um, and then, then also with Kashmir. Sure. So the, the Narendra Modi government came to power in 2014. Uh, that was his first term in 2019. Um, he won a second term and he is the leader of the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party. And um, essentially, the BJP have uh, adopted the doctrine of creating a Hindu nationalist state, you know, of turning India into a Hindu nationalist state, which is sort of the manifesto created by the RSS. The RSS is a, a paramilitary um, uh, Hindu nationalist organization with millions of members. It's, it's most likely the biggest in the world. And they want India to be a majoritarian Hindu state in a very similar mold as, you know, Israel is. So this means that you either convert, um, if you're Muslim or Christian or any, or any other religion, you either convert to Hinduism or you basically um, live out a life in like as a second-class citizen. So all the institutions... Um, all the syllabuses in schools, um, the police services, everything bends, the, the, you know, the, the entire arc, you know, it bends towards um, a Hindu nationalist uh, discourse. And um, in terms of Kashmir, you know, Hindu nationalists believe that Kashmir is essentially, um, you know, the, the head, you know, uh, the crown of, of India. And um, it's part of this larger territorial imagination that Hindu nationalists believe. You know, okay, so Hindu nationalism uh, comes from the, 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 the ideology of uh, Hindutva. And Hindutva is essentially this 19th century um, ideology that believes in a civilizational project, you know, in which it believes it will take India, like sort of quote unquote, back to a pristine past in which the whole of India was Hindu. And the whole of India means from Afghanistan to Burma to, to Myanmar, right? And um, this Hindutva um, ideology, essentially, you could say, grew out of what some European philosophers like had argued, you know, that India had been a cradle of civilization. And then and, and essentially Hindutva built on this. So they wanted to resurrect this, this so-called forgotten past. And, um, and the idea is that, you know, uh, uh, India was completely Hindu, and Hinduism was was India, and and central to that project was you know creating um, creating Muslims as as the sort of like the the villainous uh, other you know, and um, Kashmir fits into that into that imagination because um, as I said it's like the crown of that entire territorial project, and to lose Kashmir would be to like lose a limb. You know, or lose lose your head actually, and so um, yeah. So that's that's the basic uh, that's that's the basic idea of uh, of the BJP and Modi and and Modi um, as part of his project uh, of of being reelected in 2019, he promised that you know he would end this special status that Kashmir had uh, that had since uh, 1947 um, when it became a disputed territory and. Um, and also part of his uh, manifesto is that he also promised that, um, you know, they would uh, institute, you know, more policies and more laws. Uh, for instance, like the Citizenship Amendment Act, which may, may, means that um, if you don't have your if you don't have your documents in India, like you don't have your ID document or you don't have anything that proves that you are from India, then um, if you are Hindu or if you're Christian or if you are Sikh, then you will be given that, st that status. You'll be able to get citizenship in India. You'll be able to remain. But if you're Muslim, then you are possibly going to be stateless. Um, and so it creates this, it, cre it, cr it creates this very specific kind of, um, uh, kind of legal framework in which Muslims are then institutionally seen and treated as the other. We are in conversation with Azad Essa about his new book, Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. 
Azad, so you brought us into the context of Modi and his party, the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party that kind of draws a political line from Hindutva politics. I'm wondering, some of the pieces in your book about the history of that were surprising to me. I'm wondering if you can discuss some of the particularly, uh, at least for me, surprising connection between the politics of Hindutva in the 1930s and 40s um, and what was going on in Europe at the time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we have to understand that what was going on in India or undivided, the undivided con- subcontinent, so to speak, or this, this the subcontinent before partition, was that you had the Indian National Congress that wanted to, you know, or became the the leaders of um, um, of the anti-colonial movement, you know, getting rid of the British. And parallel to that, you had the Hindu nationalists. And their project was also obviously about freedom, but it was about creating a Hindu nationalist state. Even, um, you know, that was a priority over, you know, getting rid of the British. And... Um, um, when you know you had first world war and then you had the second world war and the Indian National Congress um, could not get behind the fascist movements uh, developing in Europe in the 30s and in the 40s um, because you know this was this was antithetical to what you know to what they what their beliefs were um, and yet they did so um, even fighting the you know imagine fighting the British whereas also being in support of the British or the Allied forces when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to fighting off the fascist uh, regimes uh, developing in Italy and in Germany in particular. But the Hindu nationalists endorsed those projects in, in Germany and in Italy. Um, you know, they actually endorsed things like uh, in 1938, um, Hindu nationalists endorsed uh, Hitler's invasion of the Sudeten, Sudetenland. And... Um, and uh, one of the leaders of the Hindu nationalists uh, said things like, you know, surely Hitler knows uh, better than Nehru, who, who was essentially the, who would become the first leader of, um, of independent India. Um, says, surely Hitler knows better than Nehru what is good for the Germans, you know. Um, the Hindu nationalists wow. even yeah. supported um, the Nazi project in 1939. In fact, it's March now, right? So it's in 1939, March. Um, it essentially endorsed it, primarily uh, 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 the primarily supporting it on on ideological grounds. You know, this kind of nativist, uh, scientific sort of militarist project. It also saw the Jewish problem, so-called Jewish problem in Europe, um, and 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 understood it as the Muslim problem in, in India. Mm. So we kind of endorsed that as well. Um, and so in a way you could say that um, they linked up or they looked at the, the fascists in Europe and in, in doing so, they kind of established the Hindu nationalist movement uh, and it helped them develop their own ethno-nationalist ideology, you know, focusing on race, so like this purification, so they are. So their argument would be things like, you know, conversion. You know, we want to ban people converting from Hinduism to to Islam, and um, so they focus on on that element of race um, or ethnicity. Then they focus on nativism. So like you know, privileging people they think are indigenous, um, focusing on territory as we mentioned earlier, where we have to just like the Germans wanted, they expand, you know, their empire. Um, in, in, in the, you know, the sort of the Nazi imagination. So the Hindu nationalists wanted to do that. And, and essentially, they then borrowed their tactics of organizing as well as uh, sort of like the methods of, um, of also like, you know, um, propaganda as well. So you had like even um, journalists, Hindu nationalists aligned journalists traveling to Italy, traveling to Germany and coming back talking about the methods of the national socialism, you know, taking place in Europe. Um, so yes, that's that's. But you know, parallel to that, um, there was a fascination with the Zionist movement, um, right. and part of that, 
part of that sort of like contradiction is that they saw the Zionist movement as also kind of like linked to their imagination of, you know, putting Muslims in their place, you know, um, and also understanding that that Islam, of, you know, this anti-Muslim uh, sort of bigotry was also something that linked them up with the Zionist movement. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go next. You talked a little bit about kind of this fantasy of how Hindu nationalism sees the history of the subcontinent as a homeland for Hindu people only, essentially. Wondering if you can draw out the parallel discussion with how Zionists fantasize about the history of the land where Israel sits. And then this last point that you you mentioned a little bit, but like, do these two nations or nationalist projects share a common, I don't want to quite say enemy, but idea of opposition in Muslim populations? Sure. So the, you know, in, to, 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 to compare Zionism and Hindutva, I think the easiest way to look at it is to look at it in terms of um, two phrases, and that is exclusionary or two words, exclusionary and expansionist. Just mm-hmm. as Zionism has this imagination of a greater, you know, a greater Israel, Eretz Israel, um, and Israel does not have a constitution, which means that there are no borders. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, as I mentioned earlier, Akan Bharat, you know, in with the Hindu nationalist imagination. So they, so they believe that um, their borders, you know, uh, you know, expand as as far as they wish, essentially. And that brings in the idea of settler colonialism as well, where you are willing and you're completely um, open to replacing other populations to fulfill that ideology. The other part is exclusionary, where you are essentially saying that um, India or Israel has to be, you know, built in in, in built, you know, to replicate uh, a specific ethnicity, a specific religion, and anyone who does not fit part of that nation is basically outside that. So, for instance, when Israel, um, you know, Israel has these laws like, you know, the the right to return. You know, any J- Jewish person can come from any part of the world um, and uh, perform aliyah and become part of Israel. Um, you also have the nation state law that was passed like, you know, some years ago that talks about, you know, the, the right of self-determination is like in, in, in Israel is like primarily, you know, um, at the feet of, you know, one population, one nation, the, the Jewish people. So in, in India now you have, as I mentioned, the Citizenship Amendment Act, you know, that also then places, um, India as kind of like this now a homeland of the Hindus. And so if you don't fit as part of that project or you don't fit as part of the nation, then you are essentially outsiders to it. So that's that's basically the easiest way to describe how these two ideologies are very similar to each other. Yeah, we've spent some time now talking about the ideological connection between nationalism of Hindutva and Zionism. I want to look at some of the other connections that you discuss in your book, and particularly now the military connection. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the historic military connection and specifically how India has used Israel as a military leader and and collaborator? Um, This, of course, goes in in terms of technology, in terms of training, etc. Yeah. So there you could say that India's Israel ties develop over, you know, a set of different periods that starts in the 50s, it kind of accelerates a little bit in the 60s and 70s and um it really takes off essentially in the 90s. However, one has to remember that there were no diplomatic ties between the two countries until 1990, you know, or 1992. And um, what was happening before that was completely under, um, you know, undercover, completely secret. And um, and this was to do with the fact that India was part of the non-aligned movement 
um, and it kind of took on this uh, this public face of being very very pro Palestine. So um, so anything it did before 1992, uh, you know, it 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 really made it into the public. But you know, these things are important. Yeah. So let's let's pause and go back to those things that were done very privately or secretly during that time. What, what are you referring to specifically there? Okay, so in 1962, India and China go to war, and it's up in the Himalayan mountains. And India is struggling during that war to fight off the Chinese. And Nehru, Prime Minister Nehru, sends a letter to various leaders around the world. One of those leaders happens to be uh, David Ben-Gurion, Prime Minister of, of Israel, and he asks for help. And and essentially this happens despite these two countries not having uh, diplomatic ties. David Ben-Gurion writes back and says, yes, we will help you. What do you need? And India then replies and says, this is what I want. And when you send it, um, can you send it on ships that are unmarked, <laughs> basically? <laughs> Don't send them on ships that have the Israeli flag. And Ben-Gurion refuses and the ships are sent. At the time, you know, you have Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, uh, who's become this pan-Arab figure. And he talks to Nehru and says, you know, can you please not work with the Israelis? And Nehru says, sure, we won't. And they stop at that moment. But they don't actually stop. You know, they say they'll stop, but they don't. And three years later, they get arms again for for their war between India and Pakistan. And in seventy one, um, when uh, when India goes to war with Pakistan again over East Pakistan, which then becomes Bangladesh, uh, the Israelis send weapons again. But there's more to it. And what is really crucial, Jesse, is that things change in 1967 to a large extent, because you have the Six-Day War that takes place, and Israel demolishes these Arab armies. Um, And India, you know, looks on at Israel and basically kind of like is totally astonished by this army, by the the strength of this this small country. And And then there's a kind of discussion and a kind of tension that develops between the government and the military in India. Because now the military is saying, we we are you know, enamored by these guys. We want to be close to them. Now, so that kind of starts a shift in India towards moving towards Israel. Now, why I say that it's important is because that's also the same time where the U.S. gets very close to Israel. It's also the time when, you know, the U.S. starts recognizing Israel as a real force in the region. Prior to that, it was Britain and France that were supporting Israel. And so people just think about the U.S. when it comes to uh, Israel in 67. But actually, it, you know, it, it's, it's, we, we kind of ignore what else and how, how the rest of the world were looking at Israel at the time. And um, anyway, these subsidies start coming into Israel, and that's when Israel's military-industrial complex also kicks off. And um, after 67 and into the early 70s, India, India's uh, foreign intelligence services starts working with Mossad. And there's this weird thing that takes place in which you have India speaking very publicly, you know, uh, about Israel, about Zionism. In fact, in, in the mid-70s, it signs on to the UN General Assembly uh, Resolution 3379 that says that uh, Zionism is racism. And it also becomes the first country, a non-Arab country in the world to recognize the PLO as sort of the legitimate Mm -hmm. representatives Mm -hmm. of Palestinian people. So it does all of these things, but behind the scenes, it's it's sort of connecting with the Israelis, especially on the military level. Now we move on to the 80s. And now in the 80s with the Soviet Union sort of coming to an end, you know, um, India now is looking for options. It wants to join the global capitalist economy. It has this burgeoning, um, you know, um, uh, sort of like youth that want jobs and want all of these like luxury items uh, from the West. Um, And essentially, India starts looking at the U.S. as something 
you know, to be to be a little bit closer to, because you know historically they hadn't they hadn't been close to the U.S. As I said, they were part of the non-aligned movement, and they were, and even though they're part of the non-aligned movement, which means they were not supposed to be aligned during the Cold War, they kind of were closer to to the Soviet Union. Now, what happens in the 80s is that Rajiv Gandhi, who's the, the new prime minister um, in India, he says uh, he's told that if you want to become closer to the U.S you have to first become closer to Israel. And essentially, India's sort of like entry into the global capitalist economy uh, is becomes sort of predicated on this new relationship with Israel. And that's, that's how, you know, essentially um, this normalization takes place, you know, in 1992. Um, and after that, you know, the, the floodgates open in terms of, you know, um, army officers start traveling to Israel, um, and uh, and they start, you know, start looking at kind of like how Israel sort of like handles, you know, the Palestinians, how they, you know, they how they handle so-called counter-terror operations, you know, they start looking at what military, you know, hardware they can take from Israel. Um, and Israel looks at India and sees the biggest democracy in the world and wants to cozy up to India as fast and as and as uh, comprehensively as possible because it validates, it give, it creates legitimacy, you know, um, for Israel. Um, in the 2000s, you have, um, you know, you have the 9-11, and so that creates this sort of like rubric of, um, Islamophobia and the global war on terror. And though India does not join the global war on terror uh, officially, it basically, you know, imbibes that Islamophobic uh, rhetoric that comes with it. And they they start, you know, getting closer to, to Israel even further. But still, there isn't that much of a public, you know, participation or public demonstration of of like uh, love or kinship or friendship between the uh -huh. two countries. India is still hesitant to be seen with Israel. But with Modi in 2014, that changes because he is now avowedly a Hindu nationalist and there's nothing in his mind to apologize for. And he looks at Israel as a kind of ethno-nationalist state that you know wears its Jewishness on its sleeve, wears its militarism on its sleeve. It's powerful, is strong, gets away with whatever it gets, you know, whatever it wants to, um, and it wants to replicate that. You are listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm your host Jesse Strauss, and that's the voice of Azad Essa. We're in conversation about his new book, Hostile Homelands: The New Alliance Between India and Israel. Azad, some of the pieces of this conversation are really fascinating to me because, you know, coming from the U.S. context, much of our conversation about Israel and their military, from our perspective, has a lot to do with the aid that is sent from this country there. It's less a part of the conversation that we think of military as like a primary economic export there, um, although we do see it certainly in U.S. police training being police being sent to Israel to train with the IDF or uh, Israeli military being brought to the U.S. to do trainings. There's also a technology and actual military component relationship with India now. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. And it, of course, includes manufacturing. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, when you think about the, the trade between India and Israel, between 2000 and 2010, India bought around $10 billion worth of, worth of arms. And, um, you know, this... The, this is a major amount, right? And if you if you break down the stats, I believe between 2003 and 2013, India became the single largest purchaser of Israeli arms, uh, accounting for something like one third of all arms exported out of the Jewish state. You know, at one point in the 2000s, there's this Indian writer um, 
who says that Israel was supplying more arms to India than it was to the Israeli to the Israeli army itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a wow. a frightening thought. <laughs> and so, you know, um, now we are thinking about India buying around forty six percent of arms from Israel. So that's now inching closer to two billion dollars per year. Now, um, the thing about you know the, the the weapons trade is not just about buying weapons and not just about buying arms. It's also about the manufacturing, the co-manufacturing of these weapons. And for me, that's really you know the future of this conversation because. W- if you have a state like India that has such a good relationship with several countries around the world, certainly on an official level, far more uh, or far better relations than Israel has with several African countries in particular, you are basically you're basically seeing that uh, the expansion of the Israeli military, you know, complex, industrial complex with India, which means that you know. Israel is transferring this technology to India. Not only is it is this technology going to be used in India itself, in Kashmir, and in the in the neighborhood, okay, but it also means that um, these weapons that are built in India are going to be taken someplace else. They're going to be exported someplace else. And we are talking about small weapons. You know, we're talking about machine guns. We're talking about drones. Um, we're talking about, you know, um, sensors, you know, el- electrical, optical systems, um, surface-to-air to missiles, radars. Um, you know, these are, these are all very serious things. Um, and so the, the only way to essentially frame this is that um, the arms trade relationship between India and Israel has now become pretty much symbiotic, you know. They're kind of relying on each other. Um, and it's and so the Israeli arms industry is also relying on those purchases and is also um, relying for the expansion of it. One of the points that I would love to get to is is also in the specific technological side or export side from Israel about you know creating and maintaining these partition and occupation borders. Um, you mentioned that some of the tech in, includes, sensors not not only weapons although there are many very large and heavy duty weapons but there's also kind of both a political alignment but also military training and sharing of technology around enforcing those borders right yeah absolutely so so i think what's important here is that you know we we know that the us and israel has all of these training programs and so you have the U.S. police going to Israel and then learning these methods, including like, you know, um, using, you know, like kneeling on people's faces, right, or necks. Um, and um, uh, what we see in India is that there's this major event that takes place in 2008 where uh, 10 men linked to a Pakistani group called Lashkar Taiba. Um, attacked several sites across Mumbai, and around 195 people are killed, including nine Israelis. And so this becomes kind of India's 9/11, so to speak. And um, the authorities in India don't exactly deal with the with the crisis properly, according to like like security experts, whatever that means. But the fact that Israeli citizens were killed in this attack meant that. India and Israel, or you could say Israel was now sort of like linked, or you could say tethered to this now Indian tragedy. And so um, the Indian government, as a result, resolved to work closer with Israeli intelligence as a result of that. And this then resulted in immense investment into mass surveillance. And that also, uh, you know, created the impetus for exactly the same thing that's happening in the U.S., which means that now you have the Indian government sending police officers to Israel to learn, you know, um, to get expertise on countering terrorism and, 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 and all of that. And so they 
now become essentially these like hyper militarized units that come down, come back to India and either are sent on these missions to Kashmir or they are sent um, to even, you know, to parts of India itself in which if there's dissent or any kind of protest that the Indian state seems deems to be like, you know, um, a threat to national security, then they essentially, you know, bring in this hyper-violent kind of troops to take care of the situation. Um, and you have like, you know, um, Israeli systems, you know, already like, um, you know, cybersecurity already looking after the airports in India, the parliamentary buildings. It's completely linked. You know, it's, it's, um, um, uh, this, this kind of like digital surveillance has, has become like absolutely mass surveillance and the Israelis are pretty much at the head of that beast as such. Um, and India also has issues like in, in sort of like the, in its jungles uh, or its forests, you know, it has like um, indigenous uh, movements who are fighting for like land rights and Israeli arms are being sent there, you know, um, to fight against um, those, those indigenous movements as well. So, I mean, the, the, what has happened now is that you're not just buying arms or you're not just manufacturing them, you're actually imbibing sort of the tactics of the Israeli army or the Israeli special forces in, in your country as well. We're in conversation with Azad Essa. His latest book is Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. We don't have so much more time to chat today. So I, I wanted to bring in another element, which is that you say in your book that Hindutva is being imported into the U.S. political system. We know in this country that there are certain political lobbies and um, political stances in relationship to these ethnic and religious nationalisms outside of this country. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the growth of that here and and potentially in parallel and certainly in partnership with the Zionist lobby that exists here in this country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a very important question, especially, you know, given the context of this this conversation, you know. So Hindutva has an immense presence in the U.S. Like, don't underestimate it. And it goes back several decades. Um, the Indian diaspora sends more money home to India than any other Indian diaspora anywhere else in the world. And that means that a lot of money is going to the BJP and the RSS. Um, and, you know, for the sake of you know clarity, I think it's important to just go you know a, f a few stages back here. You see, in the in the mid seventies, there was a state of emergency in India, and the Congress Party um, leader Indira Gandhi declared a state of emergency, which you know like collapsed the the constitution, and uh, several opposition groups um, and political parties were banned, and. As part of that ban, Hindu nationalists were, you know, were affected by it. And so several, you know, Hindu nationalists left from India and came to the U.S. So they came to the U.S. and they started building these overseas branches of these organizations. So one is called uh, the VHPA, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad America. Uh, another one is called the HSS, which is, you know, the overseas version of the RSS. And, um, you know... A few decades pass, and many of these Hindu nationalists, along with the general like Indian American uh, community, they become a lot more affluent in the U.S. They become affluent, and now they want to exert some influence over the political, you know, climate in the U.S. At the same time, in the 80s, you know, we spoke about Rajiv Gandhi you know, wanting to join the global capitalist economy. So these Hindu nationalists and these Indian Americans are looking at home and they're seeing that things are changing back home and things are moving towards privatization and now they want to get into the act as well. At the same time, you know, 
what's happening in India is that you have the rise of Hindu nationalism that's linked to that sort of identity politics of the Hindu, um, uh, the identity politics of the, um, uh, that's taking place in 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 uh, in India, and um, so they are buoyed by the changes taking place in India, and and when things start, you know, going south, so to speak, in India. Um, there's a lot of criticism in the U.S. And basically what happens is that these Hindu nationalist groups in the U.S. who have been here for, for several decades, they become the voice basically to defend, um, you know, what's what's taking place in India, the changes that are taking place. Right. Now, at the same time, you also, and I know there's a lot of things happening at the same time, it might sound ridiculous, but, you know, we also mentioned that... Um, the, the Israeli government and and also Zionists in the U.S. also wanted India to be close to the to to Israel because of the legitimation it gives. So they were very happy to help those Hindu nationalists in the U.S. become a lot more clued up about how to work the political system. So in the 90s and the 2000s, it's the you know the American Jewish Committee, it's the ADL. Later, it's APAC. It's all of these groups that basically help the Hindu nationalists find their way around Capitol Hill. It's APAC that gives basically the first or helps you know Hindu Hindu Americans um, basically get the first internships. And so, what they then do is that they start you know lobbying um, for for India. They start lobbying for Hindu nationalist politics. Um, they start trying to you know, push for more U.S.-India trade deals. They start pushing for uh, U.S.-India nuclear sort of like deals as well, you know. Um, so that relation starts developing. And for the last 20 years in particular, it has become very, very, very close. So it's actually, um, it's become, you know, Hindu nationalists and, and the Zionist lobby are incredibly close today. So we are running out of time, and I want to get deeper into that. But but what I want to kind of close us out on, and, and I'm wondering if you can help us do this, is what resistance looks like to these heavy, heavily armed, strong connections between um, these two occupational uh, countries. Um, what does resistance look like? And where do you see growth on that side of things? Yeah, you know, look, there's 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 a lot to say on this, and you know, it's important to for I think for your listeners to also know that when we talk about like borrowing tactics and working together, um, you know, I, I I should give you some examples uh, f first, right? So, for instance. You know, in Kashmir, you you have the Indian Army essentially maiming people, protesters, and it's the same kind of um, the same kind of tactic that the Israelis use on Palestinian protesters. So, you in the Great Gaza March, you know, a few years ago, uh, you had you know snipers shooting Palestinians in their limbs, you know, like rendering them disabled. In in Kashmir, they shoot protesters in the eyes. There's also things like collective punishment if you are in any way linked to a resistance fighter. And even if you are not, but you are deemed to be, you your houses are, you know, essentially demolished. Um, if, uh, if someone is also deemed to be a fighter, um, they don't return their bodies to their families after they're killed, which is also mm -hmm. another kind of trauma and humiliation. They also use local actors, essentially, just like they use the Palestinian Authority India uses similar actors in in Kashmir to kind of like control the population, and and there's the same attacks on the press, same attacks on civil society, and both use the sort of veneer of being a democracy, you know, to to keep people believing that you know this is you know uh, an equitable state and it's uh, there's freedom of speech and all of that. Now my point in raising that is the good news, okay, is that <laughs> the, the good news is that. You know, these tactics are old tactics. They're old. And India is not inventing these tactics. They're borrowing these tactics. So which means that, 
you know, you have Kashmiris, you have Indian Muslims, you have Indian Christians um, in in India and in Kashmir, and you have Palestinians, you know, who are facing this, this the wrath of this this Israeli uh, military machine, that are basically facing the same kind of thing, which means that resistance can can you know can resistance can work in a way. There's the, it doesn't it doesn't require people to talk about one place anymore in a way. You know, um, it means that people can speak up about the same kind of oppression and people can link up and, th- and there's the opportunity for people power, in other words. Um, so when you talk about weapons and you talk about what's happening in Israel today, you can easily talk about India in the same breath. You know what I mean? Um, when you talk about police training, you can easily talk about Palestine and Black Lives Matter in the same breath. And so it means that you, if people get together and people start identifying how these oppressors are working together, you find that they're not very imaginative in, in the things that they do. They're not very unique. They're all using similar tactics. And it's, all, it's, it's essentially breaking away from, you know, like resistance, essentially breaking away from the silos in which they're operating and basically working together. That's essentially the message. And that's essentially why I also wrote the book, to be quite honest. It's about, you know, trying to like intervene in a way, like to also decenter the U.S. as being the only culprit, you know, in this matter. The U.S. is not the only one um, playing games in the Middle East. You know, there are several other actors and India is one of them now. Today, the, you know, in Haifa port, you have an Indian flag flying outside Haifa port. Mm. And that's, that's a major thing because now it means that India is now part and parcel and invested in the occupation. So... Um, you know, that's sort of the message is like, we need to essentially look at how these oppressors are operating and how they're working together, because then it means that once you see the patterns, it means that there could be a similar tactic in responding to them. So the globalization of resistance. And I think that's a great note to end on. You are tuned in to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and we've been in conversation this morning with Azad Essa, a South African journalist who covers U.S. foreign policy, Islamophobia, and race in the U.S. for Middle East Eye. His new book, just out on Pluto Press, is called Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. Thank you so much for joining us today, Azad. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jesse. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by me, Jesse Strauss, and hosted by Kat Brooks, sometimes by me, Jesse Strauss. Theme music was composed by Steve Raskin from Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to hit us up about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or stream online at kpfa.org. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.